Her killer was the absolute last person you would ever expect. When Sherry Rasmussen, a young, newly married woman, was found murdered in her home in 1986 in Los Angeles, police judged the crime scene and chalked it up to be a robbery gone wrong. They began their investigation as usual and found that although it appeared to be a burglary, nothing was stolen from inside the home except Sherry's BMW and her marriage certificate. And strangely, on Sherry's arm, there was an apparent bite mark left from her killer. Odd for a supposed break-in. Police look into Sherry's husband, John Rutten, but he had a rock-solid alibi. He was at work at the time of the murder and there was no indication he would ever want to hurt his wife. Police attempted to follow up with the robbery theory, looking into similar cases in the area, but authorities weren't able to ID Sherry's killer. And the case went cold for over 20 years. But Sherry Rasmussen's family knew who the killer was from day one. They knew this was not a burglary, but rather it was only staged to appear as a robbery to throw off police. The killer was someone Sherry knew and feared. The murderer had been stalking Sherry in the months leading up to her death. And this person was a prominent, trusted, and powerful figure in the community an individual that took an oath to protect. Sherry's murderer was the absolute last person that many suspected. And when this individual was later identified decades later, it shocked everyone. This is Avery After Dark, and I'm your host, Avery Ross. I'm so glad you're here for today's episode. I'm so happy to let you all know that you can enjoy all the Avery After Dark episodes on YouTube now. So you can check out every episode of the podcast and see the photos and videos to go along with the stories and cases. I know when asked, more than half of people say they prefer to watch podcast episodes as opposed to just listening to them, so I wanted to give you all that choice. So make sure you subscribe wherever you watch and listen to Avery After Dark. Hit that subscribe button. Now, today's mystery is one that I think many thought would never be solved. Behind every cold case is the victim's family that continues to live in a limbo, looking and yearning for answers. Whether it's an unsolved murder or a missing persons case, there's always that hope that one day there will be a breakthrough, some sort of evidence that will lead to answers to justice. But in the case of Sherry Rasmussen, it was different. Her family knew exactly who was responsible since day one, but had to wait decades to receive that justice. Our story begins with a couple, John Rutten and Sherry Rasmussen. The two met at a party in 1984 in LA and instantly they connected. Sherry Rasmussen was a very intelligent and kind woman who worked as a nurse. John was a very likable, social smart guy who worked as an engineer. Things quickly became serious between the two and as soon as they began dating, it was looking like this was it. And it was. Ding ding, marriage bells. Sherry and John got engaged and then married. The two shared a condo together in Van Nuys, a part of Los Angeles, California. They had only just begun their lives as a married couple. But only three months after the two wed, on the morning of February 24th, 1986, Sherry was scheduled to give a motivational speech at work later that day, but really wasn't looking forward to it. She told John she may end up calling in sick. Wanting to skip out on work? We've all been there. Sherry didn't think these kinds of speeches were very effective at work and was hoping to skip out on the entire thing. 
John got ready for work per usual, said goodbye to Sherry, and said that he left for work from their condo at the usual time around 7.20 a.m. Throughout the day, John called a few times to check in on his wife Sherry, see how she was doing. But all of his calls were going unanswered. John assumed, hey, maybe Sherry changed her mind and ended up going into work. So he calls up the hospital where Sherry works and asks one of the coworkers, hey, is Sherry there? But they tell him, no, she called in sick and never came in. She's not here. For Sherry to not contact John, this was out of the ordinary. Usually they would check in with each other periodically, as couples usually do. Sherry's sister was also calling her throughout the day too, and her calls were going unanswered as well. At 12.30 p.m., a housekeeper cleaning up the condo next door to the Ruttons claims that she heard some commotion coming from the Ruttons' apartment. She said it sounded like people were in a fight, yelling, screaming, and then shortly after, the housekeeper heard a car peeling out of the driveway and driving off quickly. She thought it was a domestic dispute and didn't think much of it. After work, John ran a few errands, stopped by the bank and the store to pick up some things, and got home just before 6 p.m. to an alarming scene. He pulls into their condo driveway and sees that Sherry's BMW is gone, and there's broken glass all over the driveway. Their condo had a balcony over the garage, and the glass all over the driveway seemed to have come from those shattered balcony doors from above. John's immediately on guard because he hasn't spoken to Sherry all day, and now he comes home to this scene, he knows something is very wrong here. John quickly makes his way inside, noticing that the door from the garage to the condo was partially open. And the very first thing he sees when he gets inside the condo is a bloody handprint on the wall next to the burglar alarm's panic button. Then he turns and sees his 29-year-old wife, Sherry, dead on the floor. From the look of it, she had been deceased for hours. He runs over, places a blanket over her face, and at 5.59 p.m., he calls 911. Sherry had been shot in the chest three times with a 38 caliber revolver. And the condo was in complete disarray. There were chairs knocked over. The place looked like it had been ransacked. I mean, there were stereos ripped from the walls. TVs were knocked over. As John waited for authorities, he ran outside, and a neighbor of John's named Alan sees John, visibly upset, and asks him, hey, what's wrong? And John is completely out of it and just says, Sherry's dead, she's dead. Given the scene, when police arrive, they initially think this must be some kind of robbery gone wrong. They also find that there are marks on Sherry's wrists, looking like she was tied up at some point. She had bruises on her face, she had defensive wounds. This was a vicious and brutal crime scene. Sherry fought for her life that day. Her killer had also attacked her with a statue that police found in the condo. Investigators thought perhaps burglars expected the couple to be gone and were surprised to find Sherry was still there, having skipped work, and they killed her. Notably, Sherry was still in her bathrobe and nightgown, suggesting that she wasn't expecting visitors and this took her by complete surprise. Police theorized that Sherry caught the burglars in the midst of stealing the TVs and stereos, killed her, and then fled the scene in Sherry's BMW. But they couldn't find any signs of forced entry, and the entire scene suggested a very long and drawn-out struggle, which is quite unusual for this type of crime, usually a robbery, it's in and out. 
It's also broad daylight, so a robber is not going to stick around longer than need be. Police also find a blanket with bullet holes and gun residue on it, which they believed was used to muffle the sounds of the gunshots. And one strange thing that investigators found was a bite mark on Sherry's arm. Investigators took a swab from the mark and logged it into evidence. They figure out that one of the gunshots shattered the balcony doors, which is where all the glass came from. So from here, police speak with that housekeeper, the only witness, and she gave them a time when exactly she was at the condos and heard the struggle going on inside Sherry and John's condo. And as it goes, police look at the husband first. But they find that John Rutten had a solid alibi at the time of the murder. He was at work. John's work and co-workers confirmed this. So if it wasn't John, investigators really continued to lean into this burglary gone very, very wrong theory. In the meantime, John is more than willing to talk to authorities and try to give them as much information as he can. He informs them that he and Sherry had only recently gotten married three months prior. The two had met at a party in 1984 and they just hit it off. He tells them they quickly fell in love. It was an instant connection. But here's the really bizarre thing. So police think that this is a robbery gone wrong, right? But find the only things missing from John and Sherry's condo is Sherry's car, a BMW, which was an engagement gift from John, and the couple's marriage license. What? What robber is going to break in and steal someone's marriage license? Leave the TVs, leave the stereos, leave the jewelry, but take a marriage license? Police were confused as Sherry's jewelry box was sitting on top of the dresser in plain sight. Many other valuables were left as well. So this robbery theory didn't quite make sense, but detectives say, well, maybe Sherry surprised them, they killed her, and then they ran off out of fear. Police keep digging into John and Sherry's personal life, trying to get any info they can on the couple. They learn when John met Sherry, he was actually involved with someone else at the time, another woman. But as soon as he met Sherry, John said, this is the one for me, supposedly ended the other relationship with this other woman. They got engaged the following year and then marriage, and it was reportedly a very happy relationship. But investigators keep digging. A past girlfriend of years who was recently dumped? Hmm, John, tell us more about this. What happened in this previous relationship? John said prior to meeting Sherry in 1978, while John was attending UCLA and studying engineering, he met a classmate, a young woman by the name of Stephanie Lazarus. She actually lived just down the hall from him in the same dorm. And John and Stephanie began an on and off again relationship. For John, it was reportedly much more of a friends with benefits type of situation. He said it wasn't anything more than just hooking up and fooling around. Meaning, he wasn't super into Stephanie like that. For him, it was much more casual. But for Stephanie, it was a completely different story. She was madly in love with John. For her, this was a very serious relationship, and she started exhibiting some pretty strange behavior. For example, she would often take photographs of John without clothing in bed as he slept. That's weird. She would also steal John's clothing out of his room and would keep and wear his clothes. Very odd, stalkerish kind of behavior. But he said the two both loved sports and they all hung around this group of friends from the dorm, so they bonded in those college years. 
And although John was just in it for the hookups, Stephanie always hoped it would become more. Their relationship continued on casually throughout college until they graduated. After that, John got a job with a hard drive manufacturer and started a new phase of his life. And Stephanie joined the Los Angeles Police Department and began her career as a patrol officer. During this time, John would obviously date other women. And Stephanie didn't like this at all. She was very jealous and kept tabs on him. She didn't seem to understand why John wasn't in love with her. So as you can imagine, when John met a beautiful blonde, Sherry Rasmussen, this was a huge problem for Stephanie. Apparently, Stephanie didn't know that John and Sherry had gotten so serious until Stephanie threw John a surprise party for his 25th birthday. And there, he told Stephanie that he was pretty crazy about Sherry and she may be the one. This was the absolute last thing that Stephanie wanted to hear. After learning this, Stephanie was in complete despair. In a letter she wrote to John's mom in 1985, she said, quote, I'm truly in love with John and the past year has really torn me up. I wish it didn't end the way it did and I don't think I'll ever understand his decision, end quote. As time went on, she was probably hoping that Sherry and John would break up, but they didn't. It just got more serious between the two. From dating to moving in together, John and Sherry were spending more and more time together. They had a blast with each other. It was love. Now, for most mentally stable people, this would be around the time that you would say, all right, it didn't work out. The man that I love is in love with another woman and he's happy, I'm going to move on. At that point, it had been years. It obviously wasn't going to become more. I think most healthy people would cut their losses and move along with their life. But not Stephanie Lazarus. She began really pushing herself onto John and inserting herself into their relationship, almost becoming a third wheel. She would often just stop by the couple's house, asking John to help her out with things. At one point, Stephanie showed up at their place all glammed up, rocking a super tight workout outfit, parading around in front of John, and she had brought her skis over, asking if he could wax them for her. And even though Sherry understandably asked John to tell Stephanie no, this was not appropriate, John defied Sherry's wishes and said yes, and he did it. So yes, Stephanie was obsessing over John, but it really appeared that John was feeding into it. After this, Sherry was asking John, all right, what's going on here? John and Stephanie were in constant contact with each other. He was doing her favors. There's still a relationship here, it seems. So understandably, Sherry is questioning him. Was this relationship truly over? John tried to reassure Sherry and said, oh yeah, it's definitely over between us. We're just friends. There is nothing to worry about. And Sherry took him at his word. Time progressed, and eventually, John popped the big question. Now, when Stephanie got wind of this engagement, ooh, it really shifted into another gear. Stephanie called John up and says, we need to talk right now. She invites him over to her condo to discuss the engagement. And for some reason, John went. I don't know why this couldn't have been a conversation over the phone, like, yeah, I'm engaged to Sherry, deal with it. Bye. But John ran over to see and console Stephanie. And there, it all came to a head and Stephanie laid it all on the line. 
telling him, John, I need you. You're the one for me. Break up with Sherry. I'm in love with you. Be with me. And what does John do? He sleeps with her. He claimed that this was going to give her closure. This was going to help her get over him. Now, I've heard some pretty stupid things in my life, but that charts high on the list as one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. You're going to sleep with a woman that you know is in love with you and is already obsessed with you to give her closure? Give me a break. I'm not sure what was going on in John's mind to hook up with Stephanie when he just got engaged to Sherry, but he did. And this only sends Stephanie further down the psycho spiral, because now she's even more convinced that John is her man. But John's got to come clean about what he did. So the next day, he came back to tell Sherry what happened with Stephanie. He told her that they slept together and asked for her forgiveness. He told her it was a mistake. He still really wants to marry her and be with her. He loves Sherry. And somehow, Sherry agreed to forgive John. She chose to move on and let it go. I'm sure it wasn't as quick and simple as that, but the couple agreed to move on with their relationship and get married. But from this point forward, there was an agreement. John was to cut off all ties with Stephanie Lazarus once and for all. This had to end. It needed to be completely over. So John slept with Stephanie, then cut off all communication with her abruptly. How do we think Stephanie took this? Not well as how. And after John and Sherry got married, it really got nuts. Stephanie began a full-on harassment campaign of Sherry. One day, she showed up at the hospital where Sherry worked and told her that things were not over between her and John and also, quote, if I can't have John, no one will, end quote. Yikes. Sherry obviously shared this with her family, her friends, and John. And I imagine that she probably hoped with the no contact that Stephanie would finally go away, but this was just getting worse. Stephanie was becoming a full-fledged stalker. She began calling Sherry throughout the day and the night, and when Sherry would answer, Stephanie would hang up. Crazy stalker behavior. One time, Sherry came home to her condo to find Stephanie standing outside her door, waiting for her, wearing her full police uniform. This was an obvious attempt to scare her, intimidate her, just total harassment, abuse of power, really creepy behavior. And as you can imagine, this stressed Sherry out to no end. I mean, she had just gotten married to John, and the entirety of her engagement and marriage so far was being ruined by Stephanie Lazarus. She was there at every turn. It was relentless. This was supposed to be the honeymoon phase of their marriage. It was ideally supposed to be a time where they're so in love, they're having fun, still getting to know each other, building their lives together. But Stephanie wasn't going to let that happen. And Sherry was hitting a real breaking point. She didn't want to deal with it anymore and even told John, look, I might leave you because this is too much for me to deal with. Most importantly, Sherry tells John, her friends and family, that Stephanie Lazarus scared her. I mean, she was a cop, she had threatened her. She was showing up at her home, calling her, stalking her. Stephanie was out of control. Sherry pleads with John to deal with Stephanie. And she asked him to tell Stephanie to leave them alone once and for all. Stand up for her. 
Sherry really wanted John to take some action here. He was the reason Stephanie was in their lives to begin with. And it's so understandable she wanted him to protect her. Sherry was his wife now. He took a vow to be loyal to her, watch over her, protect her from harm. And his ex, Stephanie, was stalking, harassing, and threatening her. And it begged the question, what else was she capable of? And what was John's response? He said, don't worry about Stephanie. Just ignore her. Just relax, John says. This is so sad and disappointing. Stephanie was clearly a woman who was in a position of power. She was a police officer and was using this to intimidate Sherry. Like, hey, look at me in my cop uniform. Look what I can do and look what I can get away with. And it seemed like it was only getting worse as time went on. Stephanie wasn't moving on as John said she would. It was only getting more tense. It was building. And ultimately, it's just really disheartening that John didn't take Sherry's concerns more seriously and not brush her aside. Because Stephanie's behavior was extremely alarming. And this is pretty chilling. In the days leading up to her murder, Sherry confided in her father and told him, that someone had been following her, stalking her. She had noticed it when she was driving to and from work. Someone was watching her. She said from what she could see, this individual appeared to be a woman, but was in disguise dressed up like a man. Hmm, wonder who that could be. Now, Sherry's dad did go to police with this information, and unlike John Rutten, Sherry's dad was really concerned about his daughter. He sensed how scared she was, and he tried to get help. But nothing came of the report, and that too was swept under the rug. So back to the murder, police now have a more in-depth look at this twisted, strange love triangle and continue with their investigation. They start by canvassing the condos on John's block in the days after Sherry's murder, talking to neighbors, asking them what did they see, what did they hear. At this point, they still believe it's a robbery gone wrong. Strange, after given all that information about Stephanie, but they were sticking to that original theory. It makes you wonder, was it tunnel vision, or was there some kind of a desire to cover for Stephanie because she was a cop herself? Police start talking with a neighbor of Sherry and John's who said that a couple gardeners knocked on her door around noon the day of Sherry's murder and gave them a purse they had found on the block. They said, hi ma'am, we found this, wanted to return it and it was found that this purse belonged to Sherry Rasmussen. A few blocks away, two days after Sherry's murder, another woman reported that two men had robbed her condo, stealing her stereo, and when she confronted them, one of the men pulled a gun. The woman took off running, but when police hear this, they think, okay, we have a nearby robbery, super similar circumstances, this could fit with Sherry's case. These two burglars were described as two Latino men, and sketches went out to the public in connection to Sherry's murder, but these suspects were never located. So that lead dried up. So as we discuss, police think that Sherry's murder was a robbery gone wrong, but nothing was stolen from Sherry and John's condo at the time of the murder, except for Sherry's BMW, which was an engagement gift from John Rutten, and the couple's marriage license. Very peculiar. And another thing we talked about, investigators found that bite mark on Sherry's arm. So the robber bit the victim, then ran off, stole their marriage license, and fled the scene? That's the theory? How does that make any sense at all? 
This crime scene screams personal. This was no average robbery. And another quick side note, finding bite marks are unusual in cases like this, but when they are found, they are much more commonly inflicted by women. And the majority of burglars are men. So some of the evidence conflicted with the theory of a burglary. There were actually a lot of things that didn't add up. 10 days later, Sherry's car was located with the keys in it a few miles from the condo. There was no conclusive evidence found inside and nothing was taken from the car, so this led nowhere as well. Even though police are on this robbery track, Sherry Rasmussen's family is telling them this was not some random burglary. They're telling police, if you wanna know who murdered Sherry, look into one of your officers, Stephanie Lazarus. They repeatedly told authorities Stephanie was stalking Sherry, she was jealous of her, she had threatened her, she had shown up at her work and home. This woman was dangerous. Stephanie had told Sherry that if she couldn't have John, no one could. How much clearer does that need to be? But the Rasmussen's pleas fell on deaf ears. And Stephanie wasn't even a high-ranking officer either. She'd only been a patrol officer for two years at that point, so it's strange that they would cover for her. But investigators really chose not to look into Stephanie at all in connection with Sherry's murder. On March 9, 1986, Stephanie Lazarus called the Santa Monica Police Department to report that her car had been broken into, her gym bag was stolen, which inside contained a lot of her personal items, including a 38 caliber revolver. Now, this was a standard issue weapon for the LAPD. And once again, LAPD chose not to put two and two together. Months pass by and there are no arrests, nothing. Sherry's parents are offering rewards for any information in their daughter's death. They're doing interviews with the press and needless to say, they were very saddened and disappointed with LAPD. They even said that when they would call detectives, they were unhelpful and even worse, they often would hang up on them or put them on hold. Even going so far as when Sherry's family urged them to look into Stephanie Lazarus, Detectives told them that they watched too much TV and that they should do themselves a favor and move on with their lives. Can you imagine? Sherry's family knew they weren't looking into Stephanie at all. They saw Sherry's case was growing colder and colder by the day when Sherry's murderer was right in front of their noses. And someone Sherry's family hoped would help them in their search for justice was John. But John moved out of the condo and actually moved out of LA after the murder. He left and said he was pretty upset, but this was also upsetting to Sherry's family because they had hoped that they could work together with John to push police in the investigation, point them the right way towards Stephanie. But John left. He said he was so grief-stricken and moved back with his parents for a few years. And there was something else. In the years following Sherry's murder, John took a trip to Hawaii. And can you guess who he went with? Stephanie. A little getaway for them, I suppose. This is just another confusing detail because did John not suspect Stephanie at all? I'm just so baffled by this as the two reportedly met up a couple times in 1990, continued to hang out, be in each other's lives, which is just very, very strange. As the years pass, the case grows colder and colder. LAPD is choosing not to look any further into Stephanie Lazarus. They have new murder cases to investigate. And over the years, Stephanie moved up the ranks in the LAPD, becoming a detective herself, and even ran a private investigation business called Unique Investigations. 
She worked as a training officer, even visiting her former junior high school, teaching kids and teens how to make good choices. She helped fundraise to provide reliable, round-the-clock childcare for parents who worked on the force. After over 20 years on the force, she'd been promoted to the high-profile, high-stakes art theft detail, which tracked stolen art and art forgeries. She ended up marrying another LAPD detective, and the two adopted a daughter. By 2004, Stephanie was a very highly respected officer in Los Angeles. Coworkers described her as professional, and she didn't have one disciplinary report in her entire career. It appeared that life had worked out for Stephanie Lazarus. That was until LAPD criminalist Jennifer Butterworth started looking into Sherry Rasmussen's cold case, looking through the forensic evidence. And Jennifer made a big discovery. She found the suspect's saliva found at the crime scene from that bite mark matched an unknown female. Jennifer connects us with the reports from Sherry's family that Sherry was being stalked at the time of her death by a woman, but this was as far as it went. LAPD was sticking to their theory that no, this was a robbery gone wrong and really didn't want to hear anything different. That was until 2009 when two detectives by the name of Jim Nuttall and Pete Barba began looking into cold cases and came upon Sherry Rasmussen's unsolved murder. They looked over the case files and thought it was interesting. They saw that the DNA test pointed to a female suspect, and they too felt that the burglary theory was invalid for a number of reasons. Number one, nothing was stolen. Besides Sherry's car and the marriage certificate, everything was left inside the condo, including Sherry's jewelry box that was in clear sight on the dresser and many other valuables that any burglar would have taken. Secondly, this crime was committed in broad daylight in the middle of a gated community of condos surrounded by neighbors. This would not be an ideal choice for a burglar as they could easily be spotted. So looking at all the evidence, the two detectives felt that this wasn't a robbery, but rather staged to appear as one. They believe the killer either had a key or picked the lock of the condo that morning and entered the condo with the motive to harm and kill Sherry. So finally, we have two detectives who seem to see this murder case for what it is. And after decades, these two detectives were about to flip the entire LAPD on its head. For Detectives Nuttall and Barba, they felt they really needed to start at the beginning of Sherry's case and work their way through it. And when they look over all the reports, all the evidence, they see a name consistently, Stephanie Lazarus. Stephanie's name was all over Sherry's case. Next to her name, it says ex-girlfriend of John, Sherry's husband. And they know they need to talk to someone. They get a hold of John Rutten, and the cold case squad asks him, hey, do you know of any women who would have wanted to hurt Sherry? And he says, well, as a matter of fact, yes. Stephanie Lazarus, and she's a cop. So this becomes quite the dance these detectives have to do because Stephanie is one of their own. And not only that, she's very well respected. So the LAPD launches an on-the-down-low investigation into Stephanie Lazarus that lasts months. They want to keep this investigation a secret because they don't want Stephanie to catch wind that they're onto her. They want her to keep her guard down. They don't want Stephanie to know that they're looking into Sherry's case at all. And even crazier, a little fun fact, Stephanie's office was right across the hallway from the cold case squad. 
So they were passing her in the hallways, sharing cups of coffee in the break room together, all the while they're investigating her for murder. Pretty wild stuff, and these detectives were very stealth. Primarily, the cold case squad is after one thing, Stephanie's DNA. They have the DNA from the swab of Sherry's bite mark, and they need Stephanie's DNA so they can see if it's a match. And eventually, they get it. They waited for Stephanie to get a drink from a cup, and when she finally does, they take it, test her DNA, compare it to the saliva found on that bite mark, and it was a match. Stephanie Lazarus has now become their main and only suspect in the murder of Sherry Rasmussen. On June 5th, 2009, 23 years after the murder of Sherry, Stephanie was in her office when an officer walked in and asked her if she could help advise them on a case they were working. This was all a ruse. And since she was one of their own, these detectives had really prepared for this interrogation more than ever before. They knew she was a seasoned detective herself. She knew how to work an interrogation. Their hope was to keep the conversation as casual and lighthearted as possible in the beginning. Get her guard down. Make her feel relaxed. And their goal from this was really to get Stephanie to admit that there would be no way that her DNA would be at the crime scene. So these officials bring her into an interview room and sit her down. And at this point, Stephanie knew she's walked into something. And Stephanie's interrogation began. The interview began with her becoming almost defensive. Why would they take her into an interrogation room of all places just to consult on a case? The reason they did this was because to enter the interrogation room, she had to hand over her weapon and they wanted her unarmed. They tell her, we wanted to talk in the interrogation room because they know if they speak to her upstairs in front of everyone, rumors would swirl and people would gossip. They tell Stephanie, they just want this to be private. And then bam, they hit her with the first question. Do you know John Rutten? And she pauses for a bit. Now we all know she knows exactly who John is. She had murdered his wife, Sherry. She had killed her. And she had been madly in love with him for years. So yeah, she knew him. But more so, Stephanie is in shock. She had been found out and she knew it. Decades had gone by and she thought she got away with murder. And now she finally sees she hasn't. It's obvious that Stephanie is nervous. She's getting more antsy and animated. She starts going off on tangents. She's giving these nutty looks. She looks like she's lying. Sociopath alert. I could explain it to you, but you need to see and hear this for yourself. For those of you who are listening, I'm about to play some of Stephanie Lazarus's interrogation interview. Let's take a look. I, you know, I mean, it just doesn't sound familiar. I mean, I mean, what are they saying? So I, I, I fought with her, so, so now, I mean, I, 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 I'm getting the jump, the leap. Excuse me, I haven't eaten. Um, they're saying, okay, I fought with her, so I must have killed her. I mean, come on. I mean, that's, you know, I, I don't even know who these people are. I, I can't even say I met any of these people. I mean, that's, it's insane. I mean, they're pointing the finger at you. Well, and I mean, that's not ringing a bell to me. So, you know, I don't know, you know, it's, uh, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that just sounds crazy to me. Yeah. So you, offhand, you don't recall ever going into her house and having words and physically, you know, no, attacking I mean, her, her attacking you. No. Nothing like that? No. I mean, that's, no. 
you know, as they processed everything, uh, they did the best they could at that time, and they looked at a lot of a lot of people and different things in this case. And you're right. I mean, if you guys are claiming that I'm a suspect, then you know, I, I got a problem with you know with that. Okay. Okay. And now it sounds like you're trying to you know, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah, we know. Okay. And it, and now it almost sounds like you're trying to pin something on me. No, now well, I, I got that sense. Well, what it gets to on these on these cases, and you know it as well as I do. Our job is to identify and eliminate suspects. I can't believe this. So if we ask you to the point to give us a DNA sample, a buccal swab, so we can identify or eliminate you, would you be willing to do that? Maybe. I just can't even believe it. I mean, it's just, I mean, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked okay. that somebody would be blamed, saying that I did this. I mean, we had a fight, and so I went and killed her. I mean, come on. Well. That's. Okay. All right. Thanks for giving me the courtesy. Thanks for your time. Outside the room, Stephanie left to find detectives awaiting to arrest her. LAPD had finally found their killer, and it was one of their own. I hope the officers who told the Rasmussens that they watched too much TV and they should move on from Sherry's case reached out to apologize because in the end, the Rasmussen family was right the entire time. Sherry's murderer was under their nose for decades. And the worst part is, if they would have listened to Sherry's family and truly looked at the evidence, they would have seen that. Because, yes, although they didn't have the DNA back in 1986, they did have the bite mark, they did have the reports of Stephanie stalking and threatening Sherry, and they did have proof of her relationship with John. The LAPD just didn't want to look or see that. And as soon as this case hit the media, it spread like wildfire. It had all the elements of a shocking story. A 20-something-year-old murder case ultimately ending with an LAPD detective being a stalking murderer. It was shocking to not only the public, but especially for the colleagues of Stephanie who thought she was this upstanding, honorable person. But really, she was a lying, manipulative sociopath who killed a woman in cold blood and went about her life without a care in the world. Investigators searched Stephanie's home and read through her diaries. In one entry read, quote, I found out that John's getting married. I was very depressed, end quote. Investigators found that Stephanie had a lot of photos of John in the diary as well. Investigators also found out that Stephanie was off work from February 21st to the 24th and returned to work on the 25th. No one reported seeing any injuries on her. On February 6, 2012, Stephanie Lazarus's trial began and lasted three weeks. Prosecutors argued that Stephanie was incredibly jealous of Sherry's relationship and marriage with John, and she went to the condo that day to murder Sherry. Investigators believe she got rid of the murder weapon and faked that car break-in. They said Stephanie used her police training to stage the break-in, make it appear like a robbery gone wrong, and said that Stephanie was a narcissistic, obsessed killer. A highlight of the trial was John Rutten's testimony. He got up several times, he became emotional and wept, especially when recalling his courtship with Sherry. He said that sleeping with Stephanie while he was engaged to his future wife was a, quote, mistake. In the end, 52-year-old Stephanie Lazarus was convicted of first-degree murder. She was sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. She's currently serving at the California Institution for Women in Corona, and she may be eligible for parole in 2034. 
And in the end, that DNA, that bite mark Stephanie left on Sherry Rasmussen, sealed her fate. There would have been no other reason for Stephanie's DNA saliva to be on Sherry Rasmussen at the murder scene unless she was the killer. And she was. And finally, the Rasmussen family received the justice they had waited decades for. I believe for so many, including myself, what really burns in this case is Stephanie Lazarus was a police officer. Every cop takes an oath to protect their community. They solemnly swear that it is their duty to serve the community, to safeguard lives and property, to protect the innocent against deception, the weak against oppression and intimidation, and the peaceful against violence and disorder. These officers are given power, and Stephanie Lazarus used her powers for evil. She murdered Sherry Rasmussen and got away with it for decades. And in the meantime, she became a highly decorated and incredibly respected officer in Los Angeles. Police believed it was a robbery, and in a way, it was. Stephanie Lazarus robbed Sherry Rasmussen of her life that day, and then continued to flaunt her power and status in LA for decades. But justice ultimately prevailed in this case. Stephanie's fellow officers, detectives that worked alongside her and the ones that ultimately took her down, say that she is an absolute and complete disgrace to law enforcement. They realized they never really knew the real Stephanie Lazarus. I would love to know your thoughts on this case. Please let me know. Leave a comment. I always love hearing your take on it all because there's a lot here. And as always, I'm working on a very spooky episode for next week, so mark your calendars. And until next episode, I'm Avery Ross, and this is Avery After Dark.